Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 773 with Renee Rodriguez. Renee's insights have transformed the way I think about storytelling and framing and boosting influence. So much good stuff. So you'll learn, one, the surprising reason why your audience isn't listening, two, the most powerful communication skill in your arsenal, and three, how to craft a narrative and a message that sticks. So if you'd like to check out our show notes or our transcript or the links to items that we mention, please Pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP773. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some of our goodies like the full text searchable transcripts of every episode and the Gold Nugget email summaries, which summarize the actionable bits from this conversation with Renee and every conversation as they release, as well as unlocking the archive to the whole vault of all 773 of these such summaries. That's the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Renee's story. For over two decades, Renee has been researching and applying behavioral neuroscience as a dynamic keynote speaker, leadership advisor, world-class sales expert, and renowned speaker coach. He's also trained more than 100,000 people in applying behavioral psychology and neurology methodologies to solve some of the toughest challenges in leadership, sales, and change. Big thanks to Renee for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Renee. Renee, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me, Pete. I appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom, and I'd love to kick us off right at the beginning with hearing one of the most surprising and fascinating discoveries you've made about humans and influence over the course of your career researching and teaching about this stuff. One of the most surprising and fascinating discoveries. I love that question. I would say that one thing that everybody here has in common is that we all are trying to create change. Influence, leadership, selling, parenting, being a police officer. It's all about trying to somehow create change. If you're selling something, you want people to change what they're purchasing to buy you. If you're parenting, don't change. Change this behavior to better behavior. Brush your teeth if you weren't brushing your teeth. And leadership is about, most often in management, it's about changing behavior. And a lot of times, behavior change, well, most often is resisted. And a lot of times, if you're getting people to want to change, the one thing that is probably the biggest is to help people save face in the process. That is probably the, the, the oddest discovery. Save face. So, so like they don't need to be humiliated and beaten down and said, I am so wrong. Yes. But it's like, oh, okay, I, I guess this makes sense. And it's kind of like something else I've done before. All right. 
Cool. Well, if they don't, if they don't have to admit they're wrong, mm-hmm. you are much more likely to get massive change. And it's kind of a, a deeper topic on how to get there, but it's really, I mean, it requ- think of what it requires though, to get a leader to be okay with that, that they don't have to get the people to admit they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a big requirement. It shows, it shows a lot of self-assurance and it shows a bigger view of a bigger picture that doesn't matter who is right or is wrong. It's a search for truth. And as long as we're on that path, it's okay. And people, if you create a safe space for people to do that, most people will opt into it, but very few will say, Hey, I was wrong. And what's ironic is if you create the safe space for people to save face later on, they'll say, you know, before I used to look at it this way, they'll come to you. Mm-hmm. So that's my random question answer to the random question. I love it. Well, and, and can you give us an example of how someone can make a change and not admit that they're wrong? And just like in practice, like what what's an example of how that unfolds? I think it applies to kids. I think it applies in relationships. I think it applies in management leadership. So I'd say an example would be a lot of times if, let's say somebody just had a poor attitude and they came to work and trying to get somebody to admit, hey, you really have a poor attitude is a big sale. It's mm-hmm. a big sale. But if you both, let's say, watched a movie or a TED Talk, we, we have a couple of concepts that we share, one of them called the Courage Scale. But let's just say to accomplish the same thing, a movie that really pinpointed in a third party view that you know, the effects of a negative attitude and everybody watched it equally together and watching that creates sort of a self-diagnosis, a self-assessment. And it's much easier to get somebody to opt into new behavior if they don't have to admit that they were wrong. But most people Mm -hmm. will say, wow, that that kind of, that's kind of how I've been. Okay. And nobody told me that, but I watched a third party kind of talk about it and they can Mm -hmm. safely do that. And it comes down to psychological safety. It's really what it comes down to. Okay. So then they could just watch that and say, oh, okay, that's cool. These people are smiling and asking about each other's day or, or, or whatever the particular behaviors are associated with the better attitude. And it's like, oh, that seems to be working well for them. And, and my colleagues want to do that and eh, seems worthwhile. I guess I'll go ahead and do that too. Cool. Well, it's, it's moreover, if you watched the negative impact, like, wow, what a jerk that guy was and look at the impact they had on the team. Mm-hmm. And if it was presented in a way that goes, wow, who am I? If it caused self-reflection in a safe way. So usually the, the positive, unfortunately, I wish it was more persuasive, but you know, if we looked at the negative impact of it from, so we, we have this thing called the courage scale and it just, it's a really simple way of defining where you are from a attitude influence energy perspective below the line would be, you know, the bottom would be zero that you get zero's death. Then you get guilt, shame, fear, apathy, anger, and then courage. And so all of those things are sort of below this line that we call the taking side of life. And so if you were to say, have you met somebody below the line that usually lives their life in fear, anger, guilt, apathy, all of those things, do they give you energy or they take it away? And most people would say, well, they, they take it away. Well, how long does it take for them to take it away? Seconds. You can be having a great day and that person, you see their name on a caller ID and instantly you're like, oh God, mm-hmm. like we all know that person. And so it becomes humorous, right? Like we all know that person. We can see it in someone else. And then we see above the line. Things like openness, willingness, reason, logic, joy, peace, enlightenment, which we all want to get to. But just those other things. Can you think of somebody who lives a majority of their life above that line? And they go, yeah. And so, well, when that person calls, how are you feeling? Immediately, great. You can be having a horrible day. That person calls and it puts a smile on your face. And so we talk about the difference between above the line, below the line as a simple example. In fact, my first TED Talk was on that. And then you watch that and you watch people who typically are below the line 
they self-reflect. They go, wow, I've really been below the line. And they see the impact and they just slowly start acting differently. But if you were to say, well, who's been below the line? See, you were below the line, you were below the line, and now you're going to change. Well, now the, the whole psychology has changed. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, that's good stuff. Well, and then I also want to hear a story perhaps of someone that you've seen, maybe a client or an audience member, a reader, who's, who's really had quite a transformation. They didn't have the influence they wanted. They made some changes and then they got it and saw some cool results. Yeah, so the journey of influence is really, I think, really cool. And people ask, why influence? And so I always look at the opposite of it. So look at a life without influence. You tell a joke, no one laughs. You sell a product, no one buys. You set a vision and no one follows. The feeling that follows that is usually ones of insignificance. Some people might even fall into depression, uh, high anxiety, questioning themselves, why am I here? No purpose. And the reason is, is because everything you're doing seems to have no impact on the world. And so then I go, okay, so what's the opposite of that? What does influence feel like? You tell a joke, people laugh. You sell a product, people are buying. You cast a vision and people follow. And now you realize that when you put something out to the world, it has an impact of some sort. Now we can use that impact in selling. You can use that impact in, in being a teacher. You can use that in leadership. Influence is that ability to influence an outcome of some sort. And so when you look at the transformation of those that never knew the skill and never knew the, the sequence involved or the science of it, there are a lot of people that sort of naturally picked it up over the years. They realized that you could act a certain way, speak in a certain sequence, and you'd get better results. There's a whole tons of reasons why that's the case. My mission has always been is how do you get that, those skills into the hands of people that are good but maybe have never been taught how to communicate because in business, a lot of times it's the louder, more, uh, the louder person that processes maybe even half baked ideas, but authoritatively that get listened to. Mm-hmm. And then you have sort of the smarter introverted folks that maybe process silently what's going on and fully bake an idea. But if they never speak up or communicate it in a, in a way that people want to listen to those ideas go by the wayside and yeah. the benefit to the business isn't achieved or felt. And the person doesn't feel any movement in their career. And so everybody loses. And so, I mean, I can tell you, we've got hundreds of stories. One of my favorites is Julia. So one of my good friends and clients is a company by the name of Purist. They were just named the number one most innovative food company in the world. So Tesla was the most car, innovative car company. They were food. So they've revolutionized pea protein and what what's doing and making it taste good. I mean, just the company is amazing. The research behind them is amazing. It's just, it's incredible. So the CEO came to me and said, we've got a, a, one of our content managers got a Ted talk and she's 25 and never given a talk. I said, okay. So she's going from never to her first talk, giving a Ted talk. I said, that's great. Can you get her ready? Yes. So she came to her first session with 85 pages of research that she wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. And she was an amazing, incredible narrative. And I loved it. And I said, okay, Julia, you realize you have 13 to 17 minutes and you've got 85 pages. I know. I don't know how to get it all in. (laughs) I'm like, well, you're not Mm going to get it all in. And we fought, arm wrestled back and forth on how to tell the story, what research to share, what not to share. And I finally found out that she was a basketball player and she got into a really bad accident and had traumatic brain injury. And that story began a whole journey of what it felt like to sort of make the comeback. But it was such an incredible story that 
it was what immediately captured attention. But she didn't want to tell the story because it wasn't about pea protein. And I said, well, you have to understand, if you want your audience to listen, because a lot of influence is about what do I say, but very few, very little work is done. It's how do I prepare the audience to listen? And so I gave the analogy. I said, would you ever plant a seed in cement? And of course, we'd never do that. You'd till the soil first, get rid of the cement, find good soil. I said, well, there's a sequence there. But most people plant their seeds of ideas in cement in audiences that aren't ready to listen. And so how do you get them ready? Well, a story like that that you can tell in just a couple minutes, people watching you go through this traumatic brain injury and, you know, she's you know, getting ready to play basketball, listening to her favorite song, and then smack, she pauses. And I was blindsided by a car, a traumatic brain injury, and she tells this whole story, but instantly you're, you're captivated by the story. And sort of her journey through on her love for not being able to play basketball, but going back into school and, and the comeback that the little P made. And this made this amazing story. In fact, I have the whole sort of video transformation on my website. And watching her tell that story, she came back. I said, okay, you tell the P story, that all the research, or you tell the basketball story to 10 people, come back to me, and you tell me which one people like. And she came back oh. and she said, nobody wants to hear about peas. They want to hear about my car accident and basketball. I said, okay. So we're going to use that as an opening to capture people's attention. And then we can transition into the story. And then that transitioned into some amazing stories that she told. And if you watch the, the two different people, it's, it's something that's very, very inspiring to see when mm -hmm. people learn how to tell their story. Well, and I want to talk to you about storytelling in particular. And so right now I'm wondering, that does, that does sound like a captivating, powerful story. Whoa. How'd you feel? What happened? So then how, how does one then make the connection to pea protein? So with her, it was literally using the journey of saying what well, that got me now back into what were my passions at school. And those passions at school led her to her passion for health and what brought, gave her brain health. What were the things that really led to a search internally for which transition into the benefits of peas. So without going mm -hmm. into the whole piece, it just there, everything that we do comes from the past events that we've been through. All of our past events shape what we're attracted to and what we're repelled by. And so one of the exercises, if you know, people want to learn how to tell their story is we'll ask a very simple question of what makes you unique. And so if you know, well, we can do it together. So like, what makes you unique? Sure. Well, I mean, here we are on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's like, I'm a total dork for this stuff. And I was reading books about success, goal setting, leadership, communication, psychology, influence, whatever, as a teenager. And th this was, this was my thing. And I remember, you know, other folks had like basketball player posters on their, on their walls. And I was like, they don't really make, you know, Tony Robbins or Stephen Covey <laughs> posters. So I, I don't know what to put on my wall. <laughs> I guess I'll just have more books on the shelf. I love it. So you were a fan of personal development, leadership, yeah. all that stuff. So would you say, what would you round that off as a unique, this is it, is it about learning? Would you say that that's the value behind it? Yeah, well, I would say I, I do like learning and I'm really into it. And I guess I always have been. I got good grades. And I remember that someone asked me, oh, Pete, do you study a lot? It's like, hmm, studying. And I was like, it's funny. It sounds like a straightforward question, but I thought, I don't, I guess I don't even think about it as studying. I guess, mm. I guess I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And then I feel like a attention, a curiosity, a, an uneasiness about that. And so I need to go ahead and close that gap. And I guess what one does when closing that gap is what you call studying. 
but it doesn't really feel like, oh, gotta gotta crack the book and study. It was like, yeah. no, okay, this this transcription business is clear, but the translation is not. What's that about? Okay, what's the page on the translation? Okay, okay, okay. And so, you know, for biology or whatever. So, so yeah, I guess it is about curiosity and learning and stuff. So curiosity and learning. Okay, so let's just pretend that those two are the ones we'll focus on. And so would you say that those are two personal values, that learning and being curious in life are very important words to you? Yeah. So then the research says, the neuroscience says that those, if those are personal values, or at least reflect your personal values, they were formed between the ages of 9 and 13. And so then the next logical question is, is so who was around during that time period? And that you're looking for one of two kinds of stories, either what we call a lighthouse story or a foghorn story. And the lighthouse story is somebody that was there that really was the guiding light that they were always wanting to learn. They always, they were like the perfect example, the guiding light of this value or the foghorn story. Maybe it was somebody that you needed and didn't show up. Somebody that didn't value school and you watched what, what happened to them. They weren't curious. They thought they were an know-it-all and you watch where that led their life. And so instead of saying, well, the world didn't give it to me, you said, then I'm going to be that for the world. So you mm -hmm. became it. And so it's one of those two stories. So what would it be for you? Who was around and what, what happened age nine to 13 that really led to learning and curiosity? Well, I think it's more of a lighthouse story and it's, it's my dad. And I remember I could always uh, escape the house by asking to go to the library. He would comply just about always with that request. And, and we were curious about all kinds of things from photography to chess or whatever, and would, um, you know, read books and do stuff together. And so you enjoyed your, your, those conversations with dad? Yeah. So how did it make you feel when you did that? So what we're looking for is what we call pathos. What was the feeling associated with that? You know, it, it was, uh, it felt really powerful. It was, I remember it was just like, holy crap, books make you better. Like you can become better at anything by learning the stuff. Mm. And there's vast arrays of, of books and resources and, and people that can help you. So it, it was, it just felt like in a way anything is possible. Love it. So now give me a little creative freedom. So if I were to hear that story and I were to craft the message of saying, so what is this podcast about? Instead of you saying, well, here's what it is. Here's the ethos. Here's the research. Here's all these things, which are what we call logos, very intellectually driven. You might start with, well, you know, as a kid growing up, I was always really curious. My father was one of the most influential people in my life. And he really nurtured that curiosity. If I ever needed to get out of the house, my escape was the library. And if I ever wanted to go to the library, he was always behind it. Whether it was me learning about photography or learning about, you know, astronomy, whatever it was, he, I always knew that he could do that. And every time he did that, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of power. I felt powerful. Like knowledge really did equate to power because I could see the world differently. And now that, you know, as I growing up, you know, my friends had basketball posters of the Michael Jordans and LeBron James. I was looking for posters of Stephen Covey and, and Tony Robbins and all of the people that were really sharing more of that knowledge. And so when I decided to do a podcast, I decided to do it around the theme of giving people the same gift that my father gave me was finding those same knowledge sources to empower people to be better. And so now that's why we created the podcast. So now you see how the sequence sort of formed based on understanding those two words, tracing that back to a story, which we would call your origin story. Mm -hmm. And we did it very quickly it hits the brain in a very different way when it, when it's heard in that sequence. That's well put hits the brain differently. It's like, I'm trying to articulate how it's hit my brain. Cause it's like, I mean, it's my story. I know it. It's true. <laughs> and, and yet I, I don't think I've quite articulated it 
that way. There have been bits and pieces, but uh, it's got a the hitting of the brain. It's it's like a feeling of of openness, or mm-hmm. it's like a oh okay. Well, what, so that's what this is. It, it has a little bit more emotional resonance, like as opposed to resistance. Yeah, or cliche. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I like to help people learn. You know, so we start with a message. And it hits the brain differently. It hits the part of the brain we call Broca's area. And Broca's area is a very tiny little speck in the brain that deciphers language. And we go, so yeah, I like to you know, help people learn through my podcast. And we go, okay, cool. So every podcast does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Real unique, bro. Right? And so, <laughs> but then when you start with a story, what it does is it triggers your entire sensory cortex. It triggers your limbic system, which triggers emotions. All of those past things light your brain up. If you were to look at a functional MRI scan or even a spec scan, it lights your brain up like a Christmas tree. But what it also does is it lights up the brain of the listener because storytelling is involved. And so because our brains light up in the same way, it begins the process of neural coupling. And when neural coupling happens, there's a coherence that happens between the two brains and safety is created, what we call psychological safety. So I know I'm not going to be judged. There seems to be an alignment of values. If I agree with the story or I like it, I'm attracted to the story and the values that it represents at a deeper level. And it bypasses the parts of the brain that resist, that don't feel safe. And so that sequence is what we call the beginnings of the Amplify formula to be able to begin to till the soil of the audience, meaning prep them to hear the message, which is now I want to hear all about what your podcast is about because I have the backstory to what the frame is. And so that's creating a frame or a frame of reference. And that frame of reference, frames act as constructs of reality. So I can understand reality in front of me. Like you have a podcast. Well, I understand the podcast based on whatever frame of reference I choose. If you don't provide a frame of reference, I'll choose one. If I've had negative, you know, let's say I had a negative experience of podcast. I'm like, oh, gosh, another podcast, mm-hmm. right? Then maybe that's my frame of reference. So I hear that your podcast through that filter. Yeah. But if you provide the frame first, because that's how the brain works, it needs a frame. And you provide it, the story of your dad and what he did for you and your passions for learning and curiosity and giving a gift back. I don't pull from my negative frame. I pull from your origin story as the frame. Mm-hmm. And I hear the message to completely different, totally different narrative. Okay. Well, thank you. So you said there's an Amplify sequence and, and it starts with some, some story and framing. Can you sort of give us the, the overview of the whole process sequence? Yeah. So it's the science behind it is it's pretty in depth in terms of understanding what I just said, which is part of influence. And it sounds crazy. It's about understanding how, what, how we construct reality. And so either I construct a reality that your product is valuable or not, or maybe I construct a value that my product and my time's more valuable than yours. So then why would I meet? And so how does it do that? It does that by choosing a frame of reference or the narrative around it. The narrative creates meaning, and then I understand it through that. Now, I'm not talking about a physical reality, like my table here is wood. This, you know, this, this mic stand is metal. Mm-hmm. Those are physical realities, right? You know, proven through physics and science. But the social reality of how I interpret the meaning behind something is created through narratives and frames. And so my brain, to understand it, I've got to pull a frame first. That is a neurological sequence of understanding how I process information. And so, for example, I'm going to say a profession and you tell me what word comes to mind. Used car salesman. Oh, well, it might not be fair to great professionals in the field, but you know, sleazy, dishonest. (laughs) Right. So every time it's usually something along that. So what happened is, is you 
I, we, you access your frames of reference, which is our you know, societal frames of reference that it's pretty predictable that we get that because of the stigma that's been created that, you know, people say sleazy, dishonest, all those types of things. So that frame of reference comes in front and acts as a filter to really filter out and create meaning around what's said. So if I were to say, don't worry, you can trust me. I'm a used car salesman. Most people <laughs> will, will giggle, right? And they'll say, <laughs> because it's an incongruent message and incongruency translates typically into lack of trust. And when I'm saying one thing, but I mean another, or my body is saying one thing and my words are saying something else, like I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah. So my, my tone is saying I'm not, but my words are saying I am. That's an incongruency. Sometimes we want to stand with power and authority and influence, but we stand with insecurity and submission. Those are body language cues that are, that are being incongruent. And so my grandfather was in Cuba. And he was watching the Cuban Revolution just to begin. And so he wanted to get his family out of Cuba. So he wrote a letter to the President of the United States and said, if you can get me and my family out of this country, I will come and fight for yours. So somehow mm. that letter made it to the right person. And they pulled my grandfather out along with my mother, her sister, and my grandmother. And so he went and served in the American Armed Forces for eight years. After his time, he landed at Patrick Air Force Base in Southern Florida, in Homestead, Florida, and realized very quickly that his American dream was really limited to how far he could walk because he didn't have a car. And so there was somebody, though, that believed in my, my, my grandfather. He saw what he did for this country and got him into an older vehicle. And that older vehicle allowed him to stretch his reach by 25, 50, even 100 miles, finding better employment, better pay, changing the trajectory of his life, my mother's life, and ultimately my life. And that person who believed in my grandfather was a used car salesman. And so now, if you notice, the brain didn't have even a chance to pull sleazy or dishonest because I did the work for you. Yeah. I gave you a frame first. And so now you're hearing that in the context of that frame. Yeah, that's good. When you talk about that reframing of the of the used car salesperson, I'm thinking now about this this goofy movie, Cedar Rapids. <laughs> it's got a Ed Helms and, and John C. Riley and, and and Hesh. And the idea is uh, <laughs> Ed Helms is going to the big city of Cedar Rapids because he's been in a small town environment for a long time. And that, that it's all about insurance. But, and we think, and my frame for an insurance salesperson is, oh, geez, what a boring job. <laughs> you know, right. insurance is a boring thing and selling not a lot of fun. But then he tells a story about how his dad passed away and it was an insurance person who was, I'm actually tearing up a little bit. An insurance person was like the hero for his yeah. family because they didn't know what they were going to do. But when they had that insurance money come in, suddenly right. their worries associated with if they could still go to school or whatever were put to rest. And so life insurance salespeople are, are heroes to him. And doing this right. is like a dream that it was very powerful in, in a goofy, fun movie. And so there you have it. We have a story and we have a frame and it totally, you're right. It doesn't give me an opportunity to grasp onto, yeah, life insurance sales is boring. And so if you think about it, if it changed the frame, frames dictate perception and perception equals reality. And so the superpower here is understanding storytelling. So look at what just happened. You recall the story. Yeah. And you got emotional. 10-year-old movie. That's a comedy. 10-year-old movie. And so, <laughs> so what's, like, what's the science of storytelling? Well, think about it this way. The research says that upwards of 33, sometimes even 50% of our waking hours, we spend daydreaming. And daydreaming is really scenario planning. Like, 
if I do this, then that, what color shirt should I wear on the podcast? Well, should I be ready for that headphones or not? You know, what, how do I get ready for this? What if I leave the stove on? Well, I better call this client. Are we going to, we're constantly running scenarios. That's a prefrontal lobe activity. So it's a future simulator and a future simulator. For example, it's powerful. Like if I were to tell you, I've got this new ice cream. It's uh, from Ben and Jerry's. It's called liver and onions. You want some? <laughs> not yet. Yeah, <laughs> not yet what right? you do, the magic you work on this. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now you're expecting magic, but no, typically you'd probably have a visceral response of saying, ugh, gross. Even though you've never tried it, your brain went from the past experiences, went out into the future, concocted liver and onions as an ice cream, and you taste it hypothetically as a scenario and sends a signal back saying, nah, we don't like it. And it happens in a split second. And so we're constantly running these future simulations. And there's only two situations that we stop doing that throughout the day. One is life and death situations. Somebody's in trouble. I'm in trouble. Somebody's got a gun in my head. I'll stop. I'm very present. The other is through story. When somebody tells a story, and the reason we stop daydreaming is because the storyteller is daydreaming for us. Hmm. And we use daydreams. We use stories to create narratives which create a simplified model of reality so we can understand what's going on. I'm here in my studio. I'm on a podcast. The reason I'm on a podcast is to grow my brand and awareness. And hopefully that'll translate into acts. And so we run these stories and scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm listening to this as a as a, a listener, you know, ask yourself in your business, what, are, what things and stories are you part of? And when that story doesn't match, how difficult it feels. But think about this. If the stories create the narratives and the narratives construct reality, and I, somebody tells me a good story, I'm allowing them into my brain to take up real estate and set whatever narrative they want. And the crazy thing is, is that the brain doesn't know the difference between my story and reality. I mean, literally, you just cried recalling a movie that was done based on fake actors. Mm -hmm. The story bypasses all of that, and we take on the role of the protagonist. Our empathy is triggered. Sensory cortex is triggered. Emotions are triggered. And we experience it as real. And we get into this process where we, over time, we take on even the belief systems and the decision-making process. If we hear someone's story or their thought process over and over and over and over again, we start acting as like, okay, well, what would this person do? And we forget that that's their thinking and we take it on as our own. And so we can install narratives of, of love, narratives of hate, of racism, of giving back, of a strong value proposition, of buying into a vision, the thoughts of new possibilities, new relationships, dating someone, you name it. It's all done through story. Mm-hmm. Oof. Boy, Renee, these, these implications are vast, and not just for getting someone to uh, follow you or to buy. I'm thinking about just like in terms of just your emotional states and, and the stories you tell yourself associated with what's going on around you. You got it. It's like, I, am I a victim or <laughs> to this thing? Am I trapped here forever? Right. Or am I a hero or whatever? You know, we can construct a story and feel completely different about the circumstances we're presented with. You nailed it. And that it's the stories that we tell ourselves are the most powerful. The narratives that we choose. Do we, and so, so many people choose the narrative of victim. And there's a, there's a term that I love to use called amorphity. And so when, when we go through our program, we help people identify their story and then tie it to their business value proposition, which becomes a really powerful combination. But some people go through, you know, you want to help them sell more or you want to help them be a better leader 
but they have these inner narratives that are either of a victim, they got a chip on their shoulder, who, who knows what it is. It isn't serving them in a way. Some people, me being Rodriguez, I grew up with a narrative that being Hispanic was people were against me. If it's maybe a female growing up that people are, women are trying to be held back by, by men or bald men don't have it as easy as others, whatever it is, or whatever the narrative you're running. And what I always tell people, I'm saying, so how do we set ourselves up in the best strategic position possible? Part of that is, is we have to achieve a morphity. And if morphity is, literal translation, is a lover of fate. It's a lover of your story. And I'll give you one example of this. We had one woman come through our class, and she had a lazy eye. And you could tell right away. At first, was she not looking at me? She bored. I'm like, ah, she's got a lazy eye. So, you know, no big deal. It's really not that big of a deal. Very common. And halfway through day two, or actually the beginning of day two, she said, was in front of the room telling her story. She goes, well, I don't know if you've noticed it, you know, but I do have a, a lazy eye. And I don't know if you noticed it. I'm like, yeah, noticed it right away. And she's like, looked at me with a smile, like surprised that I would just say it. I'm like, well, of course. Yeah. Big deal. I said, so tell me about your lazy eye. And she's like, well, it's been an insecurity. I try to hide it. I don't like looking at people in the eye because it just makes it obvious. And she goes, and then she, she said, but I, you know, it helps me read 800 words a minute. I'm like, what? Huh? She goes, yeah. I go, this eye right here reads 800 words a minute. I'm like, somebody Google the average, you know, somebody Google those 250 words a minute is the average. And a really good reader is 400. But this one reads 800. So I looked at her and I said, so you're saying you have a bionic eye? <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes, what? I'm like, That's, I'm like, I want an eye that reads 800 words a minute. We looked at the audience. I'm like, I want that eye too. And she kind of smiles. I'm like, you have a bionic eye, don't you? And she goes, I never thought about it that way. I go, she goes, my other eye sees distance. So I can look at people and read. And it's kind of cool. And sometimes they don't cooperate. And we all started laughing. Mm -hmm. And I said, so here's your new narrative. Now, for those of you who haven't realized, and she starts all her talks this way, I was given the gift of a bionic eye. I got an eye over here, this baby right here. She points to it, reads 800 words a minute. Average reader reads 250, a really good 400. I'm twice that. In fact, I read a 500-page book on the plane right over here. It's fantastic. I'm going to read another one tomorrow and the next day, probably. But my left eye is for distance, so I can see all of you. Now, the challenge with the bionic eye is it has a mind of its own. So sometimes it doesn't cooperate, kind of like my personality and probably a lot of you in this room here. And so if you're wondering which eye to look at, just keep your eye on this one. That's the one that's looking at you. And everybody just dies laughing. She's standing there with this pride, a new narrative, something that used to be a story. She told herself of insecurity. Now, I mean, she came up to me at this event literally last week, ran up and hugged me. She goes, that narrative, that story has changed my career and my life. I tell it at every event. I tell it at every meeting. And it just, I stand differently. I'm just happy. But to your point, the narratives we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, Renee, this is so powerful. I feel like we could and could and maybe should dig into this for hours. <laughs> You're invited back, Renee, <laughs> already. <laughs> I'd love to. So, all right. Stories are powerful. They establish frame, mm -hmm. which impact how we interpret stuff and how others we're trying to influence interpret stuff. So then what are the best practices associated with forming these stories? And maybe what are some watchouts? So, so you worked, walked through a little bit of a process with me moments ago. Is that the primary pathway you recommend? Or are there a few flavors on the menu to choose from? So there's a real simple exercise I can give it to you. I'll, I'll try to do it auditorially. Is that a word? That's, yeah, that's so. a word. We just made it up if not. And it's a way to, what we're trying to uncover is what we call a signature story. 
And a signature story is a story as unique to you as your own signature. And so uh, what I do is I, I create a, a matrix. It's basically a four by four. So four, you know, one, two, three, four by four lines. And at the top, on the far left column, there's going to be four phrases that we go down. The first phrase is, I believe. The next phrase is, I remember. The next phrase is, I was taught. And the last one is, I'm passionate about. And so those four phrases are what I call entry ramps into stories. And what I've come to learn over, we've, gosh, we've tens of thousands of people in this, is that people know how to tell stories, but sometimes they need the entry ramp. And the entry ramp is what helps trigger the memory. And so the first thing we believe we start with is three beliefs. I believe, and we just choose three. For example, you chose, I believe in curiosity and learning. And if you had a third, what would it be? Oh. First one that comes to mind. Oh, Don't think about, you know, spirituality, God stuff. Spirituality, faith, spirituality, mm-hmm. right? So you've got one. So across the top, it says, I believe in, in the first column. Second column says learning. Third column says curiosity. And the last says faith. And so now we go down the matrix to the next question, which says, I was taught. And we go to the first belief. And then we want a story of something you were taught as a kid about learning. And in that little box, we write a little story. And you have to remember what we were taught as a kid about learning. And then you go down one. What do you remember about learning? So it's remember what something you remember about learning, a story, and then something you were taught about learning. And the last one, something I'm passionate about when it comes to learning. And then we go back to the question of curiosity, something I remember as a kid about learning or curiosity, something I was taught about curiosity, and something I'm passionate about when it comes to curiosity. And then the last column would be something I remember about faith or spirituality something I was taught about faith or spirituality and something I'm passionate about. And now you have nine signature stories mm-hmm. to be able to draw from. But here's the thing. What do you do with them? Those stories. They're nothing without a message to follow. And the third part of what we call the Amplify formula, which is a tie down. And a tie down answers the question of what this means to you is. Mm-hmm. So I can give you a story of how all three work together if you'd like. Let's do it. So, my second TED talk actually has this, this story in it, but it's a story of Janice. Now, Janice was a, uh, an executive of a very large organization. They wanted me to help her get ready for an interview to take on the CEO position of a billion dollar organization within the, the larger conglomerate. And the interview was very intense, seven, eight, nine, ten hours sometimes with 10 people in the room, all focused on her drilling her with questions. So we started with a mock interview. I put three people in front of her. And asked her the question, first question. I sit off to the side. I look at facial expression, sequencing, timing, storytelling, framing. I look at all the things that I look at. And first question was, tell us something you're proud of. And she looks at us and answers very presidential, short, concise, and to the point. I got straight A's my last year in school. One of my proud, proudest moments was her answer. So now, one thing we know about frames is that when we talk, if we don't provide one, the listener will create one for us. They have to. That's how they construct reality. You, you know, you're right. Right, right there. It's like, oh, okay, you know, you worked really hard or you worked really hard or your parents were smart or <laughs> yeah, there you, go. you had a good tutor. It's weird. I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> you, you, and immediately, right? And it's the, the brain can't handle it. It's like one of the things that... Excuse me, something fell off the shelf, but we're fine. <laughs> so now you saw my reaction there, right? Yeah. And so I'm looking off, I paused. And so the listeners might say, hold on a second, did we lose something? I'll sometimes get up and walk off camera in the middle of the podcast. And the, the interviewer was like looking at me like, 
what what happened and I'll do that in the middle of a training. He's mad at me. <laughs> He's mad at me. I did it on stage in front of 600 CEOs. When I stopped in the middle and I'm like, I looked at them, and I turned around and walked off stage. And then from behind stage, I said, now, I want you all to pay attention to how you feel and what's going through your minds. And I came back out and I said, what do you think happened? And I got five or six, 10 responses and all of them were different. I thought you were having a heart attack. I thought you might've forgotten your lines. It looked like you were crying. I thought, and they were all <clears throat> assumptions. And I did that to illustrate the point that your brain does not deal in narrative gaps. It has to fill it, even if it's false. And our world is full of narrative gaps right now. And so when she says, I got straight A's my last year in school, there's a huge narrative gap there. And I'm going to fill it based on my own past experience. So they looked at me, what'd you think? I said, oh, so straight A's your last year in school? So you're a procrastinator? Are you going to procrastinate for us as well? <laughs> she looks at me like I'm crazy. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Did mommy and daddy pay for school so you didn't have to work that hard? <laughs> you know, Or even yours. You said, oh, your mom and dad must have been really smart. Rich, probably had good tutors. Lucky you. So who knows what these unfair narratives are, but the brain doesn't have a choice. It has to fill it. And so now pay attention to this. I said to her, and she's got a tear in her eye when I said that to her. I said, look, I go, I didn't mean those things, but you didn't fill it for us. You didn't tell us the frame or the narrative. But I know it's important to you, wasn't it? And she just nodded her head. And I said, why? And then when she told me the story behind it, it changed everything. She looks at me and she said, when you've been told you're stupid your entire life by adults, you tend to believe them. And something happened my last year in school where I looked myself in the mirror and I said, either I'm going to believe them forever or I'm going to do something about it. And I did something about it. So now that frame completely shifts the message. And the message now understood differently changes the reality of the relationship between how I perceive her. And so now I'm emotionally moved. I'm probably more connected with her. I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably felt some sort of shift internally, maybe protective of her. Who knows what it is, but it's pathos. There's an emotional connection there. And so then the next question is, is so what do I do with that? Because that's powerful. There's a lot of emotion in the air, but for what purpose? Mm -hmm. Most speakers, most leaders will, that learn how storytelling, they'll stop at that, but it doesn't create influence. It creates emotional connection, but influence is about affecting a behavior. And so the last part, the tie down would be adding this step next, which is having a clear influence objective to get the job. A tie down answers the question of what this means to you is. So I might share that story instead of saying, hey, well, you know, tell something you're proud of and starting with, oh, I got straight A's my last year in school, frames and narratives gone wild. Who knows what they're going to believe? Or if I just go with a little contextualization, well, I was told I was dumb, but then I decided to turn it around and now I'm, you know, I got straight A's. Everyone's like, wow, that's great. Who's, who's next? No action mm -hmm. taken. But if you do all three, it sounds like this. So tell us something you're proud of. Well, unfortunately, start with the frame. I was surrounded by a lot of adults who told me I wasn't real smart. And when adults speak to you that way, you tend to act that way. And I, I didn't do real well in school. But something happened my last year in school where I looked myself in the mirror and I said, either I'm going to believe them forever or I'm going to do something about it. So I went out and got the help that I needed, put my nose at the grindstone. And I'm proud to tell you that I got straight A's my last year in school. Tie down. Now I'm assuming if I do get a chance to work with you and your team, that there's gonna be times where we're gonna be facing some pretty big challenges and maybe some insurmountable obstacles or seemingly insurmountable obstacles. But I promise you this, if I get to be on your team, I'll be out there next to you, if not out in front, overcoming those challenges in the same way I overcame them in my own personal life, but this time for you and for your team. Frame, message, tie down. That's the sequence that creates influence. Well, that's powerful. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, 
there's so much uh, gravitas, conviction, oomph, power there. Mm. It's hard not to believe such a person. Right. You know, as opposed to, and interviews are stomping grounds for BS. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that, right. You believe that. And I believe you. Look, hey, let's see if you can check the other boxes. Determination, right. conviction, totally covered. Let's see what, how about financial skills? I don't know. Whatever's next on the checklist. Yeah. All of those things come second nature. Like once you believe the person and who they are, you start saying, okay, well, let's, let's just make sure they check all the boxes so we can move forward. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, Renee, tell me, anything important you want to make sure to put out there before I ask about a couple of your favorite things? Well, we wrote a book. It was just it just landed uh, number two Wall Street Journal bestseller. Amplify your influence. Yeah. And then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think the meetrene.com, follow me on social media, Instagram, see Renee speak like there. All right. Perfect. And can you now share a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? Probably one of my favorites is, is uh, from Stanley Kubrick. And he said that, our ability to eloquently talk about a subject matter can create the consoling illusion that we've mastered it. Uh-huh. To me, that keeps me humble because I can talk about all these things eloquently, and yet I can still struggle with every single one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a favorite book? One of my favorite books is uh, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. It's from Mahan Khalsa. He was a Harvard guy that talks about how to really sell difficult, complex technology solutions, but his, his mentality behind the concept of let's get real, let's have real conversations, let's deal in the reality here, or let's just not play. And to me, it was one of my favorite books I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say this, that the challenge that we faced in growing up, most of us here, was that the things that now are most important, we were told weren't. They were called soft skills. The things that you know, didn't, you know, like, oh, the interpersonal skills, emotional intelligence, all of those things. And we valued all the quote unquote hard skills that school taught us. But we know with the research right now that those hard skills aren't the determining factor for success. They're needed. Trust me, they are needed, but they aren't the differentiator. Your ability to deal with people, connect with people, build trust. And that is mostly done through vulnerability, through your story. When you can share your story, where you've been through and where you come from, not creates the ground for trust, empathy, and most importantly, somewhere to move forward together. Mm. Renee, thank you. This has been powerful and beautiful. I wish you much luck and that your book, Amplify Your Influence, is a huge success. Thank you. Appreciate being on here. Thank you so much. I really love Renee's demonstrations there associated with the, the frame placement and the storytelling and that notion that if we don't have a frame we're just going to make one up. And I, once he illuminated that, I have been noticing that all the time. Like, oh, somebody get back to me. Well, they probably see instantly. I just sort of have a perspective and I'm just inventing a story which may or may not be true. So that's just a good bit of self-awareness right there. And then also a huge opportunity to have that invitation to apply the frame that is most helpful and advantageous up front. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've mentioned are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP773. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.